0: All right, hey, so we're in the book of Hebrews tonight. Chapter four. Hebrews four. Verses 12 and 13. We're gonna look at two verses tonight. We're gonna finish this, this warning section that the writer has been giving these uh, readers. Next week, we're gonna start that section where it talked about Jesus as our high priest. And so a lot of good stuff there, but we wanna close it out with Talking about the Word of God and just really sitting back and thinking about how blessed we are to have the complete revelation of God in the Bible in our hands. Really, when you think about it, it's amazing. We have the complete revelation of God in one book that we can spend time meditating on daily, day after day after day. The title of the study is Just the Facts. So, Father, we thank you, Lord. We ask that you would give us the facts, Lord, but you would give us even more than that. Lord, you would give us your heart and your ways. Lord, that your spirit would pour upon us, Lord, anoint us and just refresh us, Lord, as a, as a waterfall, Lord, would fall on us, Lord, that we would just, just be so drenched, Lord, with your spirit. Lord, that we would be overflow, Lord, and respond in praise and obedience to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as everyone knows, just because something is said to be a fact does not actually mean that it's a fact. That's like 98% of stuff on the internet, right? It says it's a fact, but you can't really believe it. Just because it says it's a fact is not actually true. It has to be tested. It has to be tested. Now, there's a lot of things that, that are said to be facts that have never been tested, and if they were tested, they would not be true. Here's 10 so-called facts about Chuck Norris that you might have heard that can't be tested. Chuck Norris threw a grenade and killed 50 people, then it exploded. <laughs> Chuck Norris can put out a fire with a gallon of gasoline. I don't think that's possible. Chuck Norris can kill two stones with one bird. Chuck Norris can kill your imaginary friends. <laughs> Chuck Norris beat the sun in a steering contest. It's pretty good. Once a cobra bit Chuck Norris's leg, <laughs> and after five days of excruciating pain, the cobra died. There used to be a street named after Chuck Norris, but it changed because no one crosses Chuck and lives. Chuck Norris can set ants on fire with a magnifying glass at night. <laughs> Once Chuck Norris ordered a Big Mac at Burger King and he got it. And last one, which I think is great, Chuck Norris tried to lose weight, but Chuck never loses. And so, (laughs) so these statements are said to be facts, but in reality, they're just jokes, right? They're not true. Now, I point this out tonight because the writer of Hebrews is gonna point out some amazing facts about the Bible, the Word of God. And as we approach these things, we can know without a doubt that they're not jokes. They're not just some made up fairy tale, but they're actual truths because they can be tested objectively. They've been verified over 2,000 years in the lives of believers as they have applied these things to their lives and seen God change their lives. We can have that trust and that assurance as we approach the Word of God tonight. As we approach the Word tonight, we're going to learn two things. First, the victorious Christian life begins by submitting to the facts of the Word of God. And number two, the victorious Christian life begins by submitting to the facts Of our Father. So, first in verse 12, we learn that the victorious Christian life begins by submitting to the facts of the Word of God. Now, these Hebrew Christians were no doubt put in a point of decision when they heard this book read by their pastor. That's how the book came. It was a letter written, all one letter, written to a church that probably circulated, and it came into the hands of this pastor to this group of believers. And probably on one Sunday morning, the pastor got up there and read this entire letter to them. It was a point of decision for them. What would they do? It met them exactly where they were in their life. It spoke to them that day, exactly where they were. Would they choose to exalt Jesus over the former things of Judaism? Would they choose to repent of their leanings to turn from Christ and return to Judaism? That was really the two things that are addressed often in this book. How would they respond to these things? Now we've seen as we've been looking at the second warning uh, in beginning in chapter three, verse seven. The writer says that just as Israel was at a point of decision to make an important decision and you know, this decision would affect whether they would be blessed or whether they would experience discipline. What would these believers do? as they were put in that same situation. The writer said, hey, put yourself in their shoes for a second. They were at a very important point of decision even as you're at a point of decision. What did they do and what will you do? Now what's interesting is we're not told what these individuals did. We're not told how they responded to these warnings of the writer. Now we assume that they repented and entered this promised rest, right, that we talked about last week, that they entered into this life of victory, but we're not told. One reason we're not told is because the focus is on you and I. The, sometimes the Lord has to say, hey, don't worry about him or her. Don't worry about what I'm doing in their life. My thinking and my talking is to you. I love that passage in the Gospel of John, where Peter and John are walking with the Lord after Jesus you know, is, is resurrected. And there they're walking and the Lord turns to Peter and says, hey Peter, you know when you're younger you went where you wanted and you know, did the things you know, that you want, but when you're older it's not gonna be like that. Someone else is gonna gird you up. And John tells us that he spoke of those things concerning Peter's death. The Lord told Peter how he would die and Peter heard that and he turned around and said, well, what about him? And the Lord says, hey, if I will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about John, but what am I doing in your life? And same thing for you and I tonight. We're at the point of decision. And really we're at the point of decision any time we come to the word of God. It speaks to us. How will we respond to it? Well, as we know, we should respond in obedience because responding in obedience to the word of God is how we enter this victorious Christian life. It always begins by faith and obedience. It's really very simple. If you think about it. Faith and obedience, right? Trust and obey. There's no other way. Right? The, that kid song that we sing. Now we should trust the word of God because it's powerful, it's precise, and it's able to lead us forward in our Christian life. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thought and intents of the heart. Wow, what what an amazing verse. So the writer begins by talking about the Bible, And notice how he addresses the Bible. He says, The Bible is the Word of God. We know this is talking about the Bible because the word here is Rhema. And that's talking about the specific written Word. So he's not talking about the Logos, which, you know, Jesus is. You know, Jesus is the Word of God, become flesh. But he's talking about the written Word, you know, that which he's been speaking to them about. And he says, You know, that it's the Word of God. Now, some people have a hard time with this understanding that the Bible is the word of God. You know, they'll hear that and they'll say, I, I don't believe that. Really, when you boil it down, really oftentimes it comes down to sin. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Some of these guys, Bart Ehrman or, or whoever it might be, you know, these guys who, you know, try to attack the Bible and try to claim that the Bible is the word of God. Really, when you think about it, it really comes down to sin. It comes down to rebellion. That's where it began in Satan's heart in, in heaven. It began with will I submit to the will of God? Adam and Eve were tested in the same way. Will I submit to the will of God? You know, and so in the same way for a lot of these people who reject the word of God, often they reject it because they don't want to submit to the will of God. And if they can reject the Bible as the word of God, then it has no authority over their life. Then they become the authority. They can do whatever they want. And so just because some person with a bunch of letters after name says that they don't believe the Bible is the word of God doesn't change my mind in any way. It only reveals the fact that their heart is sinful and wicked and they don't want to submit to God. Now, there are things that we can learn about the Bible and questions that can be answered to prove to us and show us that the Bible is the Word of God. There's really an amazing story of how the Bible came from God to us. It's really an amazing story. And, and often the questions that people have can answered as we trace this story. I want to do that a little bit tonight as we have some time with just these two verses. First, it began with God. And we call this revelation. Revelation is how God's word came to man. It it really began in the heart of God. He wanted to communicate to us. He made us to have a relationship. And he wanted to speak to us. And God did that through his revelation. In chapter one, verse one, we saw that God spoke at various times and in various ways. That's how he communicated. At various times and in various ways. He spoke through The lot, right? He spoke through the Urim and Thummim, spoke through angels and prophets. He often spoke to the believer's heart personally as the word of the Lord came to the prophets and they spoke and they wrote. And so God communicated. He revealed himself to man so man could understand it, so man could get it. Well, these folks who received this word of God, they put it on paper and we call this inspiration. And so inspiration is the process in which God gave his revelation to man and made sure that it came on paper and that it wasn't altered in any way, that it was exactly what he wanted written. We call it overseeing it or superintending it. So it's pretty amazing. As the Lord worked on these people's hearts and they wrote using their own thought patterns and literary styles and language and all that, God was really overseeing it. He was inspiring it. He was breathing his word out to where the end product is it was exactly what God wanted written. As we're told in Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, it says, all scripture, the writings, are given by inspiration of God. God oversaw all those writings. And because they're the word of God, they're inerrant, they're without error. And they're profitable. They're effective for our life. We can apply them to our life and we can use them and they're powerful and effective. Now we know that the writer of the Hebrews believed that the Bible was the inspired word. We know it because he often used it. People say, well, prove to me that the Bible is the word. Well, just read it. <laughs> read it and I'll show you. In Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, he said God was speaking through the prophets. In chapter 3, verse 7, he said that God spoke through David in Psalm 95. It was really God speaking through David. David was writing, but it was God speaking. It was the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 4, it was God speaking through Moses on the seventh day. Moses was writing about the seventh day, but it was God saying that he rested on the seventh day. And so, you know, over and over and over, we see what what the writer says, God says, and what God says, the writer says. It's used interchangeably because they are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I love here is that not only does the writer show that the Old Testament is the word of God, but he shows that the very writings that he was giving them was the word. It's pretty amazing to think about that. When these, write, when these guys wrote these letters, they knew that that word was the word of God. Paul said, When I came to you, I didn't come to you on my own authority. I came to you speaking the word of God. They understood that the Lord was inspiring them. And we see this throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament. This man was putting his, his teachings on the same par with Scripture, the Old Testament. Paul, when he spoke of, or excuse me, Peter, when he spoke of Paul's writings, put them on the same plane as the Old Testament. And even Paul talking about the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke to be specific, in First Timothy, he said that they were just as equal as the book of Deuteronomy. And so he, they all quoted these together because they believed that God was speaking through them. And we can trust that, that God is speaking through us in the same way. Also another evidence objectively that we can look at, something we can stand outside and see is prophecy. Prophecy is the greatest evidence that the Bible that we have is the word of God. You know, for example, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah called by name the the King Cyrus, King Cyrus 150 years before he even lived. Daniel spoke of these different empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian or Macedonian Empire, the Roman Empire. He predicted all these things before they even came to pass. And liberals, people who try to deny the word of God, they look at that and they say, well, someone must have written that later. <laughs> there must have been th- like two Isaiahs or, you know, must have been written after. That's the only argument they have, but they fall apart because they have no evidence. So the Bible's the Word of God. Now, there's something called canonization. The Bible was put together. People sometimes have a problem with this as we talk about the Bible's the Word of God. How was the Word of God collected into one book? Now, the church did not have an official list of the New Testament that everybody agreed upon in the West in the East until 397 A.D., until 397. Now, the Old Testament was never in question, really. I mean, I mean, the Old Testament was solidified. Everybody believed the 39 books that we have of the Old Testament to be the inspired word. But there was some questions and there was some deciding on the New Testament. Now, why did it take so long from when the Bible was finished in 100 A.D.? Well, first of all, because there was no need for an official list. There was no need for it. You see, when the Bible was completed in 100 AD, everybody knew exactly the inspired books. They were written by the apostles or one of their associates. And they were circulated around, and everybody read them, and everybody submitted to them. And also, the focus of the church was not doctrine. It was devotion. Because at that time, it was persecution. And the church was more focused on, hey, I'm gonna die for Christ right now than it is on debating doctrine. Now, there was false teachings and false teachings were corrected, but true believers were weeded out from false believers pretty quickly as persecution came through the church. But in the middle of the 200s, a false teacher by the name of Marcion began making lists of books that he said were actually from God. And many of these books were not the same as in our Bible. Now, the church in response to this had to respond so they can have an accurate list for, for new believers, and they did that. They began forming lists. An official list was gathered in 397. Now, some have argued about this and said, well, wait a second. They, p- they picked and choose what bi- books should be in the Bible. How do we know there's really not more books out there that we should really have and trust? They had all these so-called books out there, and most of these books that you re- see in Barnes and Nobles, they're actually written like 300 or something AD. They're... They're called false gospels. So they had all these books. And the church used a couple of things to determine which were the word of God and which were not. They didn't pick and choose which was the word of God. They let the books speak for themselves. They looked at their own credentials. They looked at whether they were written by an apostle or an associate. So they had to be written before 100 AD. If they weren't written before that, they were rejected. Which is like the gospel of Mary Magdalene and gospel of Thomas. All this stuff, like the movie the early life of Jesus, that's all based on the gospel of Thomas, which is a false gospel written later on. You know, uh, Da Vinci Code, it's all used by false gospels, all this stuff. So they were excluded. Did the, did the book claim to be inspired? If it didn't claim to be inspired, it was, re, it was rejected. Did it, did it contradict what the other book said? You know, if it, So if it contradicted what the other book said, obviously it can't be from God because God's not going to make a mistake. So those books were rejected. So we have an accurate list of books. They all bear the authority of God. There's no other books out there that are going to be found that we need to add the Bible's closed. It's sealed. We have what we need. Now, fourth, there's transmission. God began using people to copy these things. As believers began to grow and and things, they they need manuscripts. They, They need the Word of God. And so God gave them manuscripts in their own language. And we have a bunch of manuscripts today. Some date as far back as 350 years from the originals. And this is really amazing when you look at all other books. The New Testament has more manuscripts and better manuscripts than any ancient book in history. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. We even have in almost entire New Testaments that date to 300 or 400 or around 400 and 450 AD. It's amazing. You can go back and read them. No other ancient book in history has that. But we have that. And with these manuscripts, scholars can look at these things and determine what was in the originals. Now, we don't have the original writings of the apostles. We don't have those original letters. But what we do is we have copies of those. But those copies of those are good copies. So scholars can look at them and determine what was actually written in the originals. Now, lastly, there's translations. When I was a new believer, my dad told me this. He said, well, you can't really believe that the word of God is, the Bible's the word of God because there's so many translations out there. How do you really know which one to read? Right? And people who say that often have never read any other translations. I mean, you can pull up Esau and get like five different translations on your, on your page and see they're all basically similar. They're all saying the same thing, just in kind of a slightly different way. So uh, over time, the Bible needed to be translated in different languages because people from other language groups needed the Bible, But now today we have accurate translations. We have good translations that that can be compared and things like that. Now the question arises, well, is the Bible in our hand, that English translation, is it the word of God? And I would say the answer is yes. We can know it's the word of God because it faithfully communicates what was in the original text. We can know that the Bible in our hand is trustworthy. That it's accurate in all that God wanted to say to us. And so when, when we come across this phrase that the Bible is the word of God, we don't have to worry about these different arguments that people level against the Bible. We can know, we can stand sure that it's true. The facts are on our side. They're not jokes, right? They're real. But it gets better than that. Not only do we have hard, cold facts, but we have intimate truths that speak to us from the scriptures themselves, things that the word of God can do in our lives, Notice, notice the writer goes on and says that the word of God is. Just think about that for a second. The word of God is. Think about what the word of God is. Now the writer doesn't say, well, what is the word of God to you? What is the word of God to me? Let's determine this. What, what is it? He says, no, here's what the word of God is. It's truth. And as you read throughout the scripture, the interpretation is not left up to people to determine what the word of God is to them. The word of God is to me a storybook that I have learned stories about people's lives and I wanna apply it to my story, you know, kind of thing. It sounds very good and flowery, but in reality, the word of God is truth and it tells us exactly what it does in our life. David Guzik in his commentary gives a very good list of facts that we can know that the word of God does in our life. Let me just read to you these facts. Here's what the word of God is. The Word of God brings true health, fruitfulness, prosperity, and success to the things that we do. Psalm one three. The Word of God has healing power. It has the power to deliver us from oppression. We that in Matthew eight, sixteen? The Word of God is cleansing. If we take heed to the Word of God, it will cleanse us. We said we're washed by the Word. The Word of God is if it's hidden in our heart will keep us from sin, it says in Psalm one hundred nineteen. The word of God is our counselor. As we delight in God's word, it's a rich source to counsel us and guide us, right? As we see it in Psalm 119. The word of God is a source of strength to us. The word of God imparts life to us. It's a continual source of life. God's word is an illumination and guidance to us. When we come to it, it'll make us wise and understanding. God's word gives us peace. Everyone who loves it, it gives them peace and it'll make them secure and stand in a safe place. The word of God is heard and understood, or when it, excuse me, when it is heard and understood, it bears fruit. The word of God has inherent power and authority against demonic powers. Jesus himself, the eternal word, is revealed by the word. So the more we know of the word, the more we know Jesus. Hearing God's word is essential to eternal life. You cannot pass from death to life without knowing the word. Abiding or living in the word is evidence of true discipleship. God's word is the means by which God changes us. He sanctifies us, John 17, 17. God can do dramatic works with the Holy Spirit through his word as it's preached. Hearing God's word builds us up in our faith, Romans 10, 17. Holding fast to the work can give us present assurance. The faithful word in the hand of a minister can give him a clear conscience as they preach before God. The word of God is our sword of the spirit. It equips us for the spiritual battle. The word of God comes with the power of the Holy Spirit and much assurance. The word of God works effectively in those who believe. The word of God sanctifies the very food that we eat. The word of God is our source of growth. And then the writer of Hebrews gives us even more. He says, but the word of God is living and powerful. The word of God is living and powerful. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list. I mean, I'm sure you can just keep going on and on and on. And there's scripture references to each one of these things. The word of God is very clear in the power that it has in our life if we'll just submit to it. Well, the writer says that to the Hebrews in this passage. He says, hey, guys, I've been warning you guys through the word. I've been giving you instructions from numbers. I've been giving you instructions from Psalm 95. I've been giving you the words that the Lord has put on my heart. Now you need to know that the words I'm giving you are living and they're powerful. The word is living. They're living because they come from a living God. And the words as we heed them can actually give us life. The word actually gives life. We see that in the parable of the sower as Jesus says he sows the seed and it falls on different ground. Well, the soil that receives it, it produces life. It bears fruit and fruit that remains. Peter said, you know, be, you're born again by the word of God as it, as, as it comes in you. So if you receive the word, it gives life to the dead soul. But not only that, but it has power to continue to work in your heart as you walk with the Lord. Every believer knows this, that God can speak to you through his word. The Bible's not just a history book. It has history in it. It talks about science and things like that. But it's living, it's powerful, It's prophetic. And the Holy Spirit's able to take these truths and apply them specifically to our situations, to our circumstances. We see that with Psalm 95. It was written to one audience in the Old Testament, but man, the writer was using it to speak specifically to these folks here in their situation. And we all know that God can do that in our lives. The meaning doesn't change of the text, but how God uses it often ministers to us at different times in different ways. You know, maybe you might read one passage last year so, and, you know, and you're through the Bible reading or whatever and it ministers to you in a such a way that wow Lord it meets me exactly where I am but this year you read it and you see something totally new that's because the word is living because the living God through his spirit is taking it and applying it to your heart and speaking to you through it he's leading you through it the word is powerful another way to say this word powerful is this energizing it's this transforming it actually works in us it's at work in us. So as I hear these words, I'm not just getting facts, but I'm actually allowing the Lord to transform me from glory to glory. That word, I, even though I don't see it, it's, it's doing a work in my life. It's energizing me. It's, it's making me alive. Now, this is pretty neat because it shows us that the commands of God are also his power to do them. So if there's power through the word of God, As I approach a command in Scripture, I can rejoice because I know that it's something that the Lord wants to give me power in. Often we look at our life and we think, man, my life is kind of dull. It doesn't seem as powerful as the folks in the book of Acts or, you know, throughout the Scriptures. But it's the same Word. It's the same Spirit that lives today. And as we apply ourselves to them, the Lord wants to give us power. He wants to enable us to do the things that He tells us to do. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. There's no tool or weapon of man that is as effective as the word of God. There's nothing. Everything is like a dull spoon, right? It's like a dull spoon compared to the word of God. Remember that Robin Hood? Cut his heart out with a spoon. Sorry, I have to, you know. It's like, why not an ax or a knife? It's dull, you twit, you know. So, So, I mean, so it's like everything compared to the word of God is a spoon. That's exactly what it is compare any book, compare any philosophy, any religion to the word of God and it's dull. It can't affect a life. It can only teach outward religion. It can only teach outward reformation, but it has no power to affect the heart. So Paul said in the book of Colossians, he said, yeah, you guys are fasting, you guys are doing all these different things, trying to follow these legalists, but it has no power over the works of the flesh. It has no power to the, true works of the heart, only the word of God is sharp enough to get through the flesh and through the spirit to actually do a, a work in our heart. It's not an effective tool to cut out what we need to cut out. And he says that here, the word of God pierces. It can even pierce. It pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit and joints and marrow. So the word of God's sharp and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce even into the immaterial nature of man. Even as a surgeon's scalpel is used with precision to go in and divide the joints of man and to divide the marrow, right, from the bone, even so, the word of God is able to get deep down into our immaterial nature and actually divide the soul and the spirit. When you read about the soul and the spirit, that part of us that we don't see, that that spiritual Nature that God gave us. People don't understand it. And they have a hard time. Some say well there are actually one nature. And there's two facets. Others say well no there's two parts. And people debate about it. But the word of God's clear. Only the Lord knows how to divide the two. Only the Lord is able to go in. And do this work. It's something that's beyond our comprehension. And, and, and understanding who we really are. As people. As, as, as creations of God. But God's able to do that. He's your maker. He's the designer. And he's able to go in and program you and and work in your life and get right down into your heart to help you live how he wants you to live. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is able to discern our thoughts. The word discern is actually the word critic. So the Lord is able to stand back and hear it and correct us and give criticism on how we're thinking, that's our thoughts. But notice this, our intents, why we're thinking it. That's pretty amazing. So as we read the word of God, the Lord is actually able to reveal to us what we're thinking. Oh man, that's sin. Oh, that's, that's, that's a good thought, kind of thing. And the intents, why we're actually thinking it, where it came from. He's able to discern it. And Jesus did that to the Pharisees. He said, hey, you guys are thinking about killing me you know, you guys are arguing about this, but it's really from your heart, from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. He was discerning between the soul and the spirit. So as we get into the word, it's able to teach us. It's able to, to work in us. Now think about how powerful this statement would have been to these Hebrew Christians who began hearing this warning in 3.7. The word of God was speaking to them. It was judging them. It was showing them their thoughts. It was showing them the intents of their heart that they were wrong and thinking about turning back. The question is, how would they apply it? How would they respond to it? Well, they should respond in obedience because, second, the victorious Christian life begins by submitting to the facts of the Father. Verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so, as the Word of God criticizes us and points out our thoughts and why we think them, you know, and we're convicted by those, we can't hide from them. We can't play it off. You know, you try, you trip or whatever, you hit your head or whatever, try to play it off. You know, I mean, we, we all have that testimony, you know, where you kind of look around and see if anybody sees Okay, nobody saw, I'm good. You know, can, can I walk off? But we can't play it off with God because He sees there's no creature hidden from His sight. So as the word of, us, as the, word of the Lord speaks to us, We can either accept it or we can reject it, but we can't hide from it. We can't hide from it. I didn't hear it, Lord. I'm going to hide over here. Adam and Eve tried to do that, and the Lord came looking for them, and he found them covered with fig leaves. So there's no creature hidden from his sight. David understood this truth when he wrote Psalm 139. He said, where can I go from the presence of the Lord? If I would descend into heaven, he's there. If I descend into the abyss, he's there. He knows my thoughts are far off. He understood this truth. These Hebrew Christians cannot hide their thoughts of apostasy. They were naked and open before God. They were exposed before him. Their hearts were laid bare before him. And they should respond to his word. They needed to be like Joseph and and respond to what the Lord was saying. I loved the the life of Joseph because he demonstrates his truth through through actions. Remember Potiphar's wife? You know, as she wanted to be with Joseph you know, she saw him, and, and there she often asked Joseph. She solicited, you know, to, to have sexual relationships with them, you know, and, and she, often she went after him, and, and Joseph would run away and run away and run away. So finally, one day, she found an opportunity where nobody was there. There was no servants around. Nobody would have known, right? And she said, lie with me. And Joseph, he said, no way. He ran, you know, and he left his, his shirt in her hand as she tried to pull it. She had to do one of those hockey moves or whatever, you know? Pull and he ran away out, out of the house. And then obviously she went, out, she went after him and you know, tried to lie about him saying that he raped her and things like that, or tried to rape her. But Joseph was a man of integrity. And he lived before God. And when she tried to come after him, here's what Joseph said. He says, how can I do these things and sin against God? You see, even though nobody could see it, Joseph knew that the Lord could. And that's true integrity. And so as we come to the word, as we, as we live as Christians, the victorious life is living with integrity before God. We all act good in front of people. I mean, obviously we do. We don't want to look bad in front of people. I mean, it's easier not to be fleshly when you're around people. Right? But it's easier to get fleshly when you're not around people, when nobody sees. But you know what? The Lord sees. And we need to obey his word because he's a good father to us. Closing, and closing, one day we're gonna give an account. We stand naked and open before this God whom one day we must give an account. Now this passage doesn't teach that one day all of our sins are gonna be played before us and God is gonna judge us for those things. No, the Bible teaches that all of our sins are put as far as the east is from the west. And God chooses to not remember our sins anymore. But we will stand before the Lord one day And that standing before the Lord will be at his reward seat. And we need to know that one day we will stand before this God that that sees us. And we don't want to miss out on any rewards or blessings because we had a fleshly heart or an an impure motive now as we walk with him. And so the Lord wants to bless us. One day we're going to stand in front of him and and he's going to give us rewards. But those things which were done out of the flesh, we're not going to receive rewards for those. We're only gonna receive rewards for those things that were done from a pure heart and from pure obedience to the word. What an encouragement for us tonight to press forward in the victorious Christian life. We have all the tools we need. We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God. And we have a relationship with our father. Amen.